Well, it is good to be with you this morning. I'm reminded as I was sitting down here this morning of a a quote from John Knox that I had on my wall in my office when I pastored in southeast Colorado. John Knox said, I've never once feared the devil, but I tremble every time I enter the pulpit. And uh, that was a good reminder to me of the seriousness of the task that was mine every Sunday morning when I left my office. But it's especially true now this morning that I'm in a transparent pulpit. I don't know if I've ever preached in a place where I felt more vulnerable you can see what I'm doing with my legs and my knees, and maybe we'll get through this together. I don't know. So it's actually a, a, a wonderful thing to stand here this morning uh, because I recognize that uh, there are those who have stood in this pulpit on this stage before me who have rightly handled the Word of God, and it's my privilege to be welcomed here this morning to do the same with you, I trust, this morning. So Luke chapter 9 will be our primary text if you want to find your way to the end of Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62. You saw a picture on the screen a moment ago of my family. That was taken about a year and a half ago when we first entered this new ministry assignment with Baptist Missions. For the previous 12 years, I had been pastoring a church in southeast Colorado, a rural community, um, out in the part of Colorado that looks eerily like western Kansas, if you're familiar with that area. And uh, God gave us a very fruitful revitalization ministry there, a church that had about 15 people in the service where they voted to call me to be their pastor I was able to leave 12 years later with a congregation, about 120 active members, and a man who I had been mentoring for ministry called into the pastorate in that church right behind me as I left. God gave us a really fruitful endeavor there. We're grateful for that season. But that picture just a year and a half ago had my oldest daughter, who's now 14, um, several inches shorter than my wife, who is, I won't tell you how old she is, she's the same age as me. She, a year and a half later, my daughter, my 14-year-old daughter now is two inches taller than my wife. And uh, our kids have done a lot of growing in this past year in a lot more ways than just their height. It's been a, been a hard transition for them to leave the only home they ever knew to go to a place that they didn't know and their dad do a thing that they weren't familiar with. But it is a thing that I have been familiar with all of my life. I grew up in a, a family that uh, was connected with Baptist Missions. My parents served in the administration. My dad was the president of the mission for about 30 years. I had the privilege of knowing and loving the Baptist Missions family before I was asked to serve as the administrator for all of our North American ministries, which put me in a place where I was responsible for about 100 of our missionaries serving in the U.S., Canada, and Mexico in church planting endeavors and college ministry and theological training and camp ministries and so many other things that you'll hear about more this evening when you come back, and I trust you will. This past fall, I was also given the responsibilities for the administration of all of our ministries in Asia and South Pacific, and so now I have the privilege, and I do count it a privilege, of serving and supporting the work of about 150 missionaries in 16 countries across 19 time zones, and that sometimes looks like mentorship and counsel and care. Other times it's leadership and strategic planning. Sometimes it's resource development, training and orientation, recruitment, mobilization, and all of the things that go along with each of those, but it is my privilege this morning to stand before you, not as that guy who does those things, but simply as someone who is interested in in endeavoring with you in the Word of God. And so I turn our attention once more to Luke chapter 9. As I travel the country, I'm often reminded of the real need that exists in the church in North America, especially for pastors. There's so many churches that are out there looking for pastors. I'm appreciative of the fact that I'm in a ministry this morning who has committed itself to training and developing men for ministry and pastoral ministry because there is a, there is a, a 
large disparity in the number of those who are looking for ministry versus the churches who are looking for a man to serve in their ministry. And so the same that is true in the church in North America is actually true over the last few generations in mobilizing missionaries for for global ministry. What we see happening on a global scale is the same thing that's reflected, at least in missionary endeavoring, it's reflected in the church in North America where there are needs and vacancies in ministry here. There are needs and vacancies in global ministry as well. And so as I travel, I have committed myself to, to calling the church as I'm Uh, able to represent our ministries to a place of surrender towards ministry, not asking individuals in the local church to consider missions, but rather to commit to it and determine whether or not the Lord would be the one who would close the door rather than you, first of all, saying, no, that's that's not me, that's not my thing, that's not my gifts, those aren't my talents, that's not where the Lord would have me serve, and I know that because I've told him that. I, I am constantly engaged with mission, missionaries who remind me through our conversations, not by directly saying this, but, but their attitudes and, and the lives of, of faithful ministry that they have endeavored in. They remind me that God uses those who are surrendered to do whatever he would have them do wherever he would have them do it. He doesn't use the people that we look around and say, boy, that person seems really fit for ministry. Look at their, look at their ability to interact with, with strangers and look at their ability to, to, to navigate difficult situations and look at their ability to, to live with very little and look at their ability to handle the Word of God. Now, some of these are necessary accompaniments to someone who would serve faithfully in, in a missions endeavor. I think the primary thing that God is looking for is someone who has simply surrendered. And I've told the, the rest of our administration, as I travel, I want to be the guy who picks up the name the Frenchman because I'm calling so many people to surrender so often. <laughs> but that is our plan this morning, Luke chapter 9, to see here Jesus' view of surrender. Because if we're going to say, Lord, I will do whatever you would have me do, wherever you would have me do it, and however you would have me do it, We must come to a right understanding of Jesus' own view of what this kind of living looks like. And we have a perfect picture of this in Jesus' interaction with three different disciples along the road as we are told the story here in the end of Luke chapter 9. It begins in verse 57. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. But what a wonderful thing for Jesus to hear, right? I'm going to follow you wherever you go. Now this, keep in mind, this is from a disciple, not probably one of the 12 apostles, but a man or a woman, probably a man who has committed to the degree that he is literally at that moment following Jesus along the road wherever Jesus is going. Remember that as we consider this text. These are those who are declaring, I will follow you. The evidence would suggest in this very moment as I step where you step that I am in fact committed to following you wherever you would go. And to this declaration of fidelity, Jesus responds, amen. Here is where you should go. And this is what you should do, right? No, in fact, we have a a bit of a confusing response from Jesus. There are times, I confess, that Jesus answers questions and individuals with a measure of wisdom that I can't comprehend. And then there are times where he answers in ways that if I didn't know who Jesus was, I might be tempted to think, what is he talking about? And here's one of those occasions. 
Birds of the air have nests, foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What kind of response is that to a man who has just declared, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go? It's the response of one who knows the heart of the person who's speaking. You consider the rich young ruler and the experience that Jesus has there where someone comes to him and says, how might I enter the kingdom of heaven? How many of us would love the opportunity to have someone stand before us and ask us the simple question, how do I get to heaven? I trust that we would all be prepared to answer in some capacity like this. First, you must understand that you are not in your current position, your, your present spiritual condition, permitted to enter heaven because you are a sinner like I am. And as sinners, our sin as an offense against the Holy God separates us from Him to the degree that He would be justified in separating us from Him in eternity in a very real place called hell, where we would suffer the consequence of our own sin as His wrath is poured out on us for eternity. And understanding that, we understand this, we cannot do anything of our own good enough to remedy the problem that is ours because of our sin. So we need a Savior, and that Savior, mercifully, is Jesus Christ, God the Son, the Son of God, who stepped out of eternity into time and space, lived in the flesh as a man, was tempted as we were, yet was without sin, so that he lived a perfect sinless life, and living sinlessly, he died perfectly and substitutionally. For when he went to the cross there... As he died, he bore the full weight of God's wrath poured out against him instead of being poured out against you and me. So that Jesus Christ, as a substitutionary sacrifice, took upon himself the guilt of our sin and by his grace has granted us through faith in that finished work at the cross, evidenced as successful by his resurrection three days later, he has granted us by grace through faith the forgiveness of our sins and the securing of our eternal soul. I trust that we might answer the question, how might I get to heaven, with something like that, where we call a sinner to repentant faith in Jesus Christ. How does Jesus answer the rich young man? Well, you've got to sell everything you have and give it to the poor. <laughs> I've been through a few evangelism training classes. I've never been given that answer to give, have you? Why does Jesus answer that man that way? Because he knows his heart. And he knows that his wealth is his stumbling block, keeping him from eternity in heaven. Instead of going through all of the things that, that might be necessary for him to hear, Jesus cuts right to the heart of the matter with the rich young ruler, and he does the same thing here with this man along the road. Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. Birds have nests, foxes have holes, the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. As Jesus is rebuked to this man, effectively saying, no, you won't. Because the comforts of this life will keep you from following me wherever I go. This is a rebuke. And what we must understand that Jesus' view of surrender is a committed, sacrificial attitude. It demands an awareness of what we understand from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. We are not our own. We were bought with a price. The precious blood of Jesus Christ was that price. And therefore, we are not at liberty to live the lives that apart from Jesus Christ, we might choose to live in pursuit of our own desires and our own fleshly interests. We are not at liberty to say, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you will go as long as it is comfortable and convenient. 
Jesus' view and demand of surrendered living is that of one who would say, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go, and demonstrates that that is the declaration of their own heart by evidence of their willing sacrifice. Now, does Jesus demand that we give up everything and live in some sort of monastic poverty? No, he doesn't make that demand. But if he did, would you be willing? You see, what's on display here is the attitude of the heart of the individual declaring these things. I'll follow you wherever you go. How do I know that? Jesus would know that by your attitude about your own life and the things of it. If you're capable of looking upon your life and considering it all rubbish, as the Apostle Paul did, it is all garbage. When I look at it all and I count it, it counts as nothing. The things that are of value are the things that are ours of eternal value. Things that are ours in pursuit of knowing and loving and serving Christ. These are the things that we treasure and hold on to. The things of this world, many and varied as they are and as pleasurable as they become, mean nothing in view of eternity. Jesus' view of surrender demands a kind of committed sacrifice. We know that Jesus wants this kind of commitment because he turns to another here in verse 59. He says to another, follow me. You could picture this with me, Jesus having just mildly rebuked one who said, I'll follow you wherever you go, turns to another, and I don't know if his finger parts the crowd or if his gaze catches someone, but whatever's going on here, Jesus and the one who is hearing these words, follow me, know that he is talking to him specifically. And Jesus speaks two words, follow me. It's not as if Christ does not want faithful followers. He wants faithful followers who understand the demands placed upon their lives in accordance with faithfully following after him. Not one who would say, this seems exciting at this time. I would love to be a part of this. And when it's no longer exciting, I I suddenly have no longer an interest in these things. Which is the way that so many of us live our lives in service to Christ boy, this is exciting. I'd love to be a part of this. You know, this was exciting at one time. I I think I need to find something else to do because it doesn't really enthuse me the way it used to. Jesus wants someone who is willing to say simply, yes, I will follow you. Jesus speaks these two words as a very direct command. Follow me. There can be no question of his interest or intent. There can be no question of what his expected or anticipated response from this man ought to be. And how does the man respond? Very well, right? Yes, Lord, I will follow you. We pick it up there in verse 60. Excuse me, the end of verse 59 in verse 60. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. The man says, yes, I will follow you, but first, first, let me go and take care of the the matter of, of burying my father. One of the things that my wife and I have tried desperately to do is to teach our 
children that delayed obedience is disobedience. If I said to my daughter yesterday before I left, you need to make sure that your room is clean, go down and pick up all your dirty clothes, make your bed, put everything away that's out that needs to be away, and she said, okay, Dad, and disappeared, I would assume she went to do it. And if I return from this trip, as I'll do tomorrow, and find the room in the same amount of disarray, I would, as her father, have the privilege of delivering some measure of punishment to help her understand that she didn't do the thing that I had asked her to do. But I can almost guarantee, knowing my daughter, that she might say to me something like this, Dad, I have not yet disobeyed you. I fully intend to clean this room. My determination is to clean the room. I just haven't done it yet. She thinks she's smarter than she is. We know this. Delayed obedience is disobedience. When Jesus said, follow me, he didn't say, follow me once all of the necessary affairs of your your lives are cared for in ways that give you comfort and confidence about leaving them behind and then you can follow me. The man makes what we might assume to be a reasonable request. Yes, Lord, but let me first go and bury my father. How many of us would would want to miss the burial of our parent, mother or father? None of us would. Christ is not here negating the fifth commandment to honor your father and mother. He is not here disagreeing with the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 5 when he tells us that if we do not care for our own family, then we're worse than an unbeliever. What he's doing here is demonstrating that faithfully following after Christ in obedience demands a shift in our priorities. It demands a willingness to say, these are the things I would otherwise attend to But because I am faithfully surrendered to the call of God, I am going to leave those things in His hands. Now, we have to understand a little bit of the context here to fully grasp what's going on because the likelihood is this man's father is not dead yet. Culturally speaking, he would have had a very short period of time to get that man in the ground after he died, and I have it on pretty good authority that he didn't get a phone call from his mother that morning saying, your dad passed away last night, you need to come home. What he's really saying is, let me go home until my father dies. And then once he is dead, and I may walk the streets of gold with this man someday, so I don't want to impugn his character. It may be that he was well-intentioned. He may have, he may have just heard Jesus say, I have nowhere to lay my head. And the man says, my father is near to death and I will have an inheritance whereby I might be able to provide a place for the, the Son of God to lay his head. Whatever his motivations were, whatever his interests were, they did not align with the direct command and call of God. They did not match Jesus' own view of what genuine surrendered living looks like. Because surrender, as Christ views it, demands obedience with a shift in our priorities. I doubt very much that any of us in this room would say anything other than the priorities of our life, of our lives look like this. God is first, then family, excuse me, then <laughs> God is first, then family, then church, then everything else, right? That would be the order that most of us would, would articulate. God's at the top, 
My family is my biggest responsibility. My commitment to my church and the ministries of it in this community and everything else gets ordered somewhere underneath that. Is that the umbrella type structure that we're working with in our own minds? I doubt very much any of us would disagree with that, but I wonder how many of us, by the example of our lives and the decisions that we make, the priorities that we set, the things that we do when we have opportunity to do something else, would demonstrate that kind of ordering all of the time. Christ's view of surrender demands an obedient shift in our priorities. I've known hundreds, if not thousands, of missionaries over my life. Many of them have stayed in our own home through my childhood. I was three years old when my father began serving with Baptist Missions. You can imagine the number of missionaries that I met when I was a child. In fact, I have a lot of occasions these days where I meet with missionaries and they say to me, well, I remember you when, I, when you were a kid. And I often say, please don't remember me then and there. Whatever you remember, I'm sure it wasn't worth remembering. Let's just start fresh. I've known thousands of missionaries. And I can't begin to count the number of them who in faithful surrender to the call of God gave up the opportunity to be at weddings and funerals and family events, graduation ceremonies for their own children, the birth of nieces and nephews, all of the important things that often mark our lives those who are genuinely surrendered to the work of God and the call of God in their life are going to say, I would love to be there. If God permits, I will. But my first priority is to do what God has called me to do. Jesus' response to this man, his rebuke to this man is an expression of a, as a Jewish idiom. Let the dead bury the dead. If you're worried about burying your father, you need to understand, once he's dead, you can't do anything for him. What you can do is something for the living. Go and preach the kingdom of God. Jesus' call to this man to go and preach the kingdom of God is not a call to preach some other type of message. It is not some other gospel. It is not different than the Johannian or Pauline gospel. It is a declaration of a necessity of preaching this, the gospel of repentance and restoration by the grace of God through faith. It is the consistent call of everyone who has ever called anyone to repentant faith, be it an Old Testament saint or someone who stands in a pulpit anywhere in the world today. The preaching of the kingdom of God is a declaration of God's remedy for man's sinful, fallen condition. It is the most important thing anyone will ever hear. And I can assure you, if this morning your faith is in Jesus Christ, you would likewise say it is the most important thing you ever heard. I work with a, a man, missionary, named Steve Galt, He's administrator for our African and European ministries. He's often, I often quote him as saying, we have people out there looking for a call and ignoring their commission. You might be here this morning saying, well, you know, the, I hear what you're saying, Steve, but the Lord hasn't called me into full-time missionary service. He hasn't called me to be a pastor. But He has commissioned you. The end of the book of Matthew is very clear. 
There's a direct commission given to each and every one of us to make disciples of every nation, to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to teach them to observe or obey everything that Christ has commanded. You may not be one who God calls into a full-time pulpiteering ministry, but you are one who has been commissioned. And so I ask you this morning, are you surrendered to the commission that God has given you? in ways that would demonstrate your understanding of his view of surrendered living as a necessary commitment to sacrifice, as a willing obedience with an evidence of priorities being shifted, and lastly, as one who is faithfully enduring. Look at the last two verses here with me, verse 61 and 62. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house you got to appreciate the boldness of this third man i've woken up some mornings with this prayer on my mind lord give me the boldness of the third man in the end of luke chapter 9 because you have to assume he thinks he has it figured out the first man says i'll follow you anywhere you go jesus says no you won't because the comforts of this life will keep you from following me the second man says okay i'll follow you but let me first go and bury my father and jesus says let the dead bury their own dead and the third man willingly offers this declaration of fidelity i will follow you wherever you go the dead can bury their dead but certainly i can go and bid them in my household farewell let me go and hug my mom one last time And though his boldness, I think, is worth consideration, the rebuke that Christ offers is probably the strongest of any. Jesus' response to this man was, no one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. This man's desire to see his family and bid them farewell is likely an expression of longing for one last look, taste, touch of all of the things that he loved in this life and enjoyed in its comforts before he surrendered. It's a look back. It's an awareness that sacrifice is going to be necessary. It's an awareness that obedience is demanded. But before I go and do those things, sacrificially and obediently, let me once more enjoy the things that I can faithfully, righteously enjoy. The presence of my own family. I said it already, but I'll say it again because it's actually not my own statement. It's quote from William Hawes, who's the founder of Baptist Admissions. But the pleasures of this life have held too many a man captive and kept them from following after Christ. Jesus helps us understand what this man is really saying because, again, he knows his heart. He knows what he's dealing with here. 
This man says, let me go and bid them farewell who are in my household. We might likewise say, that's a good idea. Your mom is going to want to know where you are. Jesus knows his heart in this, and so his rebuke is not to his words, but to the attitude behind the expression. No one who puts their hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. When I was 11 years old, my father put my brother and I to work like a pair of rented mules, which is to say that he got us started in a lawn care business, and by the time I graduated high school, I was mowing 75 acres a week. One of the things my dad taught me early on was you're never going to get anyone to pay you for the work that you're wanting to do unless you make it look like it's worth paying for. And the way you do that when you're mowing a lawn is you make it look nice by striping the lawn, good straight lines. You don't go out there and just mow circles until every blade's been hit. You start with one line across the middle of the yard. And you set your eyes on the other side of the yard and you don't lift your hand from... We started, we had a a lawn tractor with a wheel. When we were done, we were doing twin stick hydro mowers. You don't lift your hands and you don't move your gaze. You keep it fixed on where you're going. And when you get to the end, you will have a straight line that you can turn around in, mark and pattern the rest of the yard off of in both directions. Jesus' statement here is something akin to that. Someone who sets their hand to the plow. I'm determined to do the work. I'm ready to go. We're in the field. And then looks back behind them is not only not going to keep pressure on the plow so that it's just going to bounce across the field, not doing any of the work it's supposed to do, but there's not going to be any clear direction or purpose in the things that you are doing. Jesus' view of surrender demands an endurance that refuses to look back. A willingness to look forward to the task that is ahead and understand the call of God. To understand that what He has tasked you with doing is accomplishing something of eternal value and it demands all of your attention. Jesus' view of surrender disallows the idea that we could ever behave like Lot's wife did. When she was told, don't look back or you will be destroyed. Do we understand Lot's wife didn't look back just to say, Oh, is there really fire and brimstone falling? I wonder if this is actually happening. The tone of the text when we read about that is that her gaze fell on that with some longing for what she was leaving behind. Brothers and sisters, as we surrender to the commission of God and the call of God in our lives, we must do so with no interest at all in looking at our lives through the lens of what might have been What could we have done? What would we have done and where would we have done it? How might our lives have been different? Missionary family that I serve, I can tell you with certainty, based on the caliber of people who serve with us, that many of our folks' lives would have been very different and much more comfortable than they have been for their lives in service. But I can also tell you this, they would not be as rewarding. And I don't know a single one of them who would trade what they have come to know in the faithful, surrendered service of Christ for whatever life would have been theirs apart from that kind of faithful, surrendered service. Jesus' view of surrender here ought to inform our own attitudes and behavior with regards to the life that we would live as I trust every one of us would say, Lord, I too... I too would follow you wherever you would go. 
My challenge this morning is simply to ask, is that kind of declaration, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you would go, a declaration of your heart that would be manifest with Jesus' view of what that means? Or is it manifest with your view of what you think that could mean? Christ's view of surrender as committed sacrifice, committed obedience, and commitment with endurance needs to be, needs to be the pattern for your life and for mine. Because as we live this way, I can assure you of what it will produce. It will produce Disciples who make disciples. And those disciples go on to make other disciples. Who go on to make other disciples. And when your life is done, when my life is done, if we live our lives in view of Jesus' view of surrender, I can likewise assure you of this. You will hear from him your creator, your sustainer, your savior, and your friend. Well done. For you have set about the task that I have given you to do and done it. Young people, old people, and everyone in between. There is opportunity for us today no matter your experiences and no matter what you think lays ahead, there is opportunity for you today to consider the life that you would live in surrendered service to Jesus Christ with his view of surrendered service in mind. Would you do that today? Would you be willing to say, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go, and I understand what that means. And I understand what it will demand of me. And I still willingly surrender to this kind of service. I trust that would be your prayer this morning. Pastor, I'm going to invite you to come close the service as you would normally. Make whatever application to your people you might find appropriate. The scripture text is clear. Its explanation or exposition is clear. The invitation is clear. There's no confusion this morning about what we've been challenged with. And we now are at a point of decision where we might determine to obey, obey Christ's commission. Let me pray and then we'll sing. Oh God in heaven, thank you for your servant, Steve Anderson, who has faithfully taught the scripture, confronting us with Jesus' call to surrender, to follow. Lord, we understand that not everyone will be a preacher or a missionary, an evangelist or such, but Lord, all of us need to be surrendered to the lordship of Jesus Christ in our lives, holding loosely to the things of this earth and following after you. Lord, may we be disciples like that. 
May we be a church like that. We ask for your help in these things. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.